Hey there, listeners. Uh, this week we have a live version of the Interchange and the Energy Gang, a joint show we did. It's live in the coronavirus pandemic sense in that we were all in our places of shelter and a lot of people on their computers watched us record an episode. We had a lot of fun. And if you missed out um, or didn't get to submit a question, don't fret because we've got more of these coming up. We're probably going to do a handful of them. Who knows how long this will last so uh, stay tuned for more of these. In the meantime, check out our sponsors. Viking Cold Solutions is one of them. Viking Cold's thermal energy storage systems store and discharge up to one megawatt for up to 13 hours per day per facility. Plus, they improve efficiency by an average of 25%. See the benefits of thermal storage for the grid, for the food industry, and the environment at vikingcold.com. We're also brought to you by NextTracker, the world's leading solar tracking solutions company. NextTracker is building the connected solar power plants of the future with smart trackers, energy storage, and the TrueCapture advanced control software. Find out more about NextTracker's integrated systems at nexttracker.com. That's nextracker.com. <laughs> oh, oh my God. We started. I was trying to trim my beard here while we were looking in the video. It's looking good. Good thing I did that before. <laughs> Jeez, I guess we're live, guys. Uh, here we go. Yes. This is Green Tech Media's Shelter in Place live podcast spectacular. Welcome, everyone. I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are coming to you from our respective quarantine quarters around the country. So this week, we're doing a joint podcast in real time in front of an audience, in front of all you, uh, presumably folks who are isolated in some fashion. So here we are alone together, as they say. I am here in my utility closet turned recording booth in Boston. Catherine Hamilton is in her tastefully decorated bedroom in Arlington, Virginia. She's our Energy Gang co-host, of course, and the co-founder of 38 North Solutions. How's it going? Great. Thank you. Really excited about this. Do you sleep with like echoes of me and Jigger bouncing around the walls mm. in that bedroom? I have to exorcise it every night. <laughs> <laughs> Jigger Shaw is our ener other Energy Gang co-host. He's the president of Generate Capital. He's there in his son's bedroom. Uh, you're, he's going to have a great story about how his father, one of the OG energy and climate podcasters, used his room as a studio during a pandemic. <laughs> Shell Khan is out there in Berkeley, California. I can't tell if he is outside. Uh, he's the director, the managing director at Energy Impact Partners. He's got a home office that I sometimes see him in with with blank walls. So I think he needed to to get outside there. Are you actually outside right I'm now? I'm not. I'm not actually outside. I'm getting this constantly on every Zoom call that I'm on. My house has this. The front of the house has like a sunroom kind of thing that's very small. I think it used to be a porch. So I think this actually is the siding of my house that you're seeing behind me. But it is enclosed. The downside to it is that in like. See what time is it right now? In like an hour and a half, the sun is going to hit one of these windows and directly it's going to hit me in the face and I'm going to start, I'm going to get drenched in sweat. <laughs> so depending on how long this podcast go, you'll, you'll see exactly my problem with work from home, which is like, this is a fantastic situation right up until like noon Pacific time and then it becomes hell on earth. Yeah, this looks nice here that I've got this nice little recording set up, but I'm actually locked away in a closet. So about a half an hour into this, uh, I start I start sweating and it gets really brutally hot in here okay so it's it's earth day y'all and 
you know, we're supposed to be worried about the health of the planet, which we all are. But I want to do a quick mental health check-in with each of you. Um, I want each of you to use a single word that describes your current state of mind now that we are well over a month into our social distancing. Uh, So, Catherine, what is yours? What's the single word that describes your mental state? I would say um, chill today because I don't have to go anywhere. Good. That's good. I I cannot say that I'm chill before I'm doing a live show. I don't care how many times I've spoken in front of people or that I can just only see you four on here. I get nervous. I have like anticipation building all day. So chill is not how I would feel. Uh, What about you, Shale? Um, Well, kind of the opposite of chill, I guess, is what I was going to say. Maybe that'd be anxious. But my word is busy. And not in the sense of like, I have so much going on. Check me out. I'm busy and important. But in the sense of like, my mind is busy all the time now because it just feels like the news cycle plus things happening at work. And like, it's just all floating around. And because most of the time I'm here within 50 feet of this house, um, it's just like all so present to me. So I'm constantly in a state of like busy mind and trying to clear my head. Is that really new? That doesn't feel new. You feel like you're, that's your constant state. I'm a compulsive multitasker, um, like to a fault. So it is true that I like a degree of busyness. This is just like a whole new level. When we started recording these using video, it really screwed up Shale because <laughs> during a lot of our conversations, he'll start texting people and sending emails and he'll still somehow be on his game. But now we can catch him in the act. So he actually has to pretend to be paying attention to one singular thing. This is why I have my fidget spinner. This is the most important device that I've got in quarantine because I'm on Zoom calls <laughs> constantly. And I because I need to multitask, I need something to be doing. So basically, anytime you're talking to me, I'm like fidget spinning in the background. Jager, what is the single word that describes your state of mind? Optimizing. Oh, how so? I just There's just so much stuff going on in my head at all times. And I feel more like... I, I feel like there's a lot more balls juggling in the air, right? Because my, my son's coming around like, you know, right before this this podcast, I had to remember to like lock the door to the bedroom. Otherwise, he'd come barging in here and like disrupt the uh, the podcast. Like there's all these little things that I didn't really have to worry about before. But now I'm like always like, wait, did I get this done? Did I tell this person this thing? Oh, my God. Did I like actually do that? Like there's a lot of stuff. Well, I have the same thing going on over here, but my reaction is surrender. So that's the word that will describe how I'm feeling right now. I have totally surrendered to the chaos and the stress, and I am now preparing for the increased weirdness that is going to come as this thing lasts much longer than most people comprehend. So um, I, I, I can do nothing. I'm, I'm a very tension-filled person. I have a lot of anxiety, which I'll probably talk about later in the show. Uh, but for some reason, I have just allowed it to wash over me, and I have surrendered to the chaos. That feels like a good thing. Yeah, it is. Definitely. So, so look, we're going to spend a lot of this show addressing questions from listeners because we want to hear about what y'all want to talk about. Um, before we get to those, I want to take tabs on this crisis through the lens of each of your work and area of focus, because each of you brings specific expertise in policy analysis, finance, venture capital. So I think we can get a sense for how the disruption right now is playing out 
broadly across many different sectors by tapping your own experience. So we've had over a month now to grapple with these changes. Um, I've Today is day 40 for me in terms of um, self-quarantining. So, you know, we've had a lot of time to figure out how this is disrupting our own jobs and therefore our own, you know, parts of the industry. And this situation is going to be with us for many, many more months to come. So what does that mean for the areas in which you are all working? Uh, we've discussed this in different forms on our shows, but I think it's important to kind of recheck and see how things are going. So Catherine, over to you on policy politics. What are the biggest changes underway right now for the way that you do your job? Yeah. So um, first, let me cover um, politics because I don't do as much directly in politics, but the, certainly politics is being interfered with. I, I don't know if you all saw the story of Ed Markey in Massachusetts, who has a primary challenge and was supposed to have a certain number of signatures to be able to get on the ballot by a certain date. And because people can't get out and go to door to door and get signatures, it was really becoming difficult for him. And he thought he wasn't going to be on the ballot. So that's how, um, you know, politically, because you can't do this door to door person to person interaction, it's really difficult for politicians to do what they need to do. The policy side is slightly different. So I will bifurcate it a little bit. One is on the regulatory front. And I reached out to NARUC, which is the, you know, industry association of all the regulators or the, you know, the group of the coalition of all the regulators. And they said, for the most part, everything's moved either, either to Zoom or telephonic meetings. Um, in Pennsylvania, they've had the largest audience they've ever seen for remote political meetings. They've had the largest engagement on social media because that's like really the only way people can communicate. Um, in states like Texas that had already set up live streaming for all of their proceedings, they just managed that very well. Uh, Montana had some issues because remember, they had a Zoom crash because people were coming on and doing inappropriate things on Zoom. So there's still this issue of how do some states work on you know, allowing for real public engagement without allowing for inappropriate engagement. So having some control over that. Um, I also talked to Dan Scripps, who is a commissioner in Michigan. And he said, you know, because of these cancellations of all of these conferences, and we've talked about this before, that you not only miss the presentation. So, you know, everybody gets a chance to do presentations and learn from each other, but it's that those hallway conversations where even for a second, he said, you may talk to someone and it'll spark an idea that'll stay with you and allow you to think more smartly about things. But I would just say on the regulatory front that regulatory proceedings are going forward. Some of them haven't been delayed, especially ones that need to be done in person. But I've been filing as I filed two last week when I was supposedly offline taking a break. So, you know, there's a lot still going on regulatory on the legislative front. Um, it's definitely puts people who don't have relationships already at a disadvantage. So, you know, I know a lot of folks on the Hill and I can reach out to staff, but it's really hard hard to do that if you don't know them and you're making these kind of cold email you know, outreaches and you don't know them and you can't see them to see their interaction. Um, so I would definitely say the regulatory proceedings have been and regulatory conversations have been a lot easier to manage because they are for the most part set up to do so. Whereas legislative is really tough. And if you aren't already in the conversation, it's hard to break in. So obviously there's a lot happening legislatively. And that's great that you can do your job almost business as usual through the regulatory piece. But 
obviously there's just an incredible amount of activity going on at the federal level right now. So what is the consequence of not being able to make your case, make those connections, particularly because Congress is going to be spending so much money? Are you worried about, you know, being able to bring clean energy groups in the door to talk about, you know, how to spend money? Um, Ultimately, like, is there is there could there be bigger problems presented? Yeah, I think it is a problem for folks who don't have some other way in the door. Certainly, I've been working just as hard with my clients and getting new clients who need to have a voice and someone who knows the people to go to. So it hasn't been as hard for me. um, But I'm sure that for some people it is. I think the main thing I would offer to people is you need to make your case right now in terms of impact. And that's jobs, economic impact, and and then greenhouse gas impact. And I think that's going to be really important for being part of the conversation is to make sure that you really present a case for what your technology or application does that can increase or bring back jobs in the economy, because that's right now what they're going to, that's kind of the next longer term phase that they're looking at. Well, we're going to make that case. That'll be part of our broader discussion. Jigger, over to you on project finance. Um, We had a conversation before a recording one day and you were saying you're just fielding a lot of calls from clients who are pretty freaked out. Um, Are you, how has your job changed? How are you interacting with clients differently? Um, Are there things that are materially different about what you're doing right now? Yeah, it's a good question. I'd say that, you know, from the perspective of existing clients, um, it's a little bit easier to have that conversation. From the perspective of new clients, it's really hard. I don't know if you guys know that CNBC show, you know, American Greed. Um, you know, like the way people like cheat people out of money is by assuming that folks are going to wire money without doing due diligence. And so like, you know, figuring out like, hey, let's go drive by the address that they listed here. Is there actually an empty piece of land there? Is there actually a building there? Right? Like just basic diligence is hard to do because people are sheltering in place. So like it's it's really hard to help new clients. For existing clients, the hard part is that the the gears are all, you know, sort of messed up right now. So if you've got long-term relationships with a bank and the bank has already promised you two billion of tax equity like Anji announced recently or others, then you're fine. But if you're new and you're going around and saying, I'm going well, even if you're an existing player, but this is a new project, and you're going around and getting tax equity commitments from um, folks, a lot of folks are saying, we're not we're not giving new commitments out until July or August. And now you're saying, but I need to have the project constructed by November because that's the setup and the IRS hasn't given me new guidance on the safe harbor modules or whatever it is. And so so ultimately you end up in this really stuck position. A lot of what I've been doing is having tough conversations with people saying, look, we're happy to fund you on construction now without getting some of the tax equity commitments and debt Uh, commitments in place because a lot of those guys can't. But if by the time the project gets to mechanical completion, um, we don't have these other things in place, you kind of get hosed and I'm going to pay you a lower price for the project. Right. And so like, like that's the trade-off, right? If you want me to move now without having a piece of paper in hand from tax equity and debt that says, yes, like, you know, we're in, well, then you have to share that risk with me. And, you know, I think that there's just a lot of people that are coming to grips with what this means because, um, 
I mean, we've got a tight time frame here, right? Think about it. Like, I mean, for all of our projects in New York City, we've been, you know, um, deemed non-essential. So we're not constructing in New York State. In California, we're fully essential. In, you know, the province of Ontario, we're essential. So each state and each jurisdiction has different rules. And I think a lot of people just four weeks ago thought, this is going to like be a four week thing and then we'll go be able, be able to go back to normal. And there's no evidence for that. We don't know exactly how this is going to play out. We don't know exactly how long the shelter in place rules are going to be and you know, who is going to get coronavirus and how it's going to affect people. And so I just think that for folks who have these hard deadlines, you know, figuring out how to convince them to be more flexible has been pretty tough for us. Shale, what about you on the venture capital side? Well, let's see, I guess two things. The first one, actually, I think you can kind of generalize what both Catherine and Jigger said um, into something broader that also applies in our world. So, you know, we our job is to work with startups. So we have 25 or so portfolio companies that we're already working with, and then a million potential new investments that we can make. And though they're all very different from each other, the thing that I think is consistent across most of them is the hardest thing to do right now is to build top of the funnel pipeline. So it's exactly the same as what Catherine said in the legislative context. If you already have the relationships, if you're already in the late stages, in this case of negotiation on a deal, you could still get that done. And those deals are still getting done. Same thing with Jigger. If you already have the relationship with the bank, you could still do it. What's really hard is the top of the funnel, which is the new stuff. And that's true across basically every company that we talk to is it's easier to get stuff done where you're already in process, much harder to start from scratch. And so we've seen a bunch of really creative strategies to like, how do you build top of the funnel? How do you build new pipeline in an environment like this? And you have to be really creative to do it because it's, it's challenging otherwise. The other thing that I think this has enforced is a lot of scenario planning which was not, you know, not every startup, not every company does really robust scenario planning. You usually set out a plan at the beginning of the year and you revisit it over the course of the year and see how you're performing and make adjustments and so on. But you don't have really like strong, multiple scenario-based, trigger-based decision points. But you're sort of forced to do that now because there's so much uncertainty, exactly as you described, Jigger, like, we have no idea how long this stuff is going to last. And so we don't know what that's going to mean in six months in terms of the new the business for basically any of these companies, which means you need to be thinking now in terms of, well, what happens if, and then draw out a bunch of scenarios and figure out what your reaction is going to be. And so I think the one silver lining here is that that kind of scenario planning is now embedded into the operations and the strategic thinking of like every company that we work with in a way that it wasn't for many of them before. I can think of one positive thing for startups. You have these really cool Zoom backgrounds now. So you can put your pitch deck up behind you and do this sort of a Steve Jobs thing and give your presentation to investors remotely in a in a way that makes you look a lot cooler. I did have one call where somebody did that. They like put a presentation behind them and then they placed strategically placed the computer in a way so that they could stand up as if they were on stage giving a pitch, like a virtual pitch and they were walking around and motioning. It was it like you know, it kind of worked. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay. So uh, this is a show to make us all feel better, to gather around, to use our midday hour to talk to one another and feel more closely connected. But we also want to get more connected to all of you. So um, we want to process what's happening alongside everyone else out there. And for the rest of the show, we're going to address a number of listener questions, some that were 
submitted ahead of time on Twitter, some that are submitted to our question and answer platform. So if, if you go, for those who are listening right now, if you go to gtm.cnf, Io, you're going to see the link there to submit questions, and we just have an absurd number of questions to work through. So I've selected some to, to start off, and there are definitely a lot that have been upvoted that we'll work our way through. Um, I will say, first of all, apologies that we will not get to anywhere uh, near all of these questions, but we're going to use a lot of these to inform future shows if we don't get to them. So we appreciate people sending them in because we will see them and we will read through them even if we don't address them right now. Okay, so we've had a few listeners. Let's have a little fun first. We've had a few listeners write in with variations of what if questions, and I want to turn them into some kind of thought exercise to begin. So uh, a little while back on Twitter, when we first put out our call for questions, uh, Elena Fox Lucas of Utility API made a comment about how the Cybertruck with an off-grid bunker was suddenly going to make sense. And uh, that got me thinking... If we really head into the apocalypse here, what is your go-to off-grid renewables strategy? Like, is there a place you'd go? Is there a technology set that you would use to protect yourself during the worst of possible scenarios? Um, so think through your optimal renewables off-grid case. What would it be? Who wants to start? Well, I have to say, you know, I, I really love West Virginia. So, yeah. you know, I'd probably... I'd totally go there, too. <laughs> I'd probably so you go just to go the, straight to West Virginia? I'd go to the Greenbrier Resort. <laughs> it's already set up to, like, host the House of Representatives or something in the case of a nuclear war. And, you know, would bring my solar panels with me, would take care of some business. They've got some off-roading available, some nice, you know, mud spas. I think, I think the Greenbrier is where it's at. Yeah, we have a fishing and hunting camp that my parents have been going to for like, I don't know, 100 years uh, right near the Green Bar. It's not as fancy, but in addition, uh, you know, so, th- so it doesn't have a bunker, but I would take zero mass water so I could have fresh wa- solar, fresh water delivered to my doorstep every day. Shia, what about you? I think I would stay local. So I'm in the Bay Area where we have an interesting dynamic at play right now, which is because of the wildfires and then the proactive power shutoffs that PG&E's had to implement over the past couple of years, there's been like a lot of activity around building microgrids or backup generation of various sizes and shapes in this territory. So everything from PG&E has been proposing these substation level microgrids. So the basic idea being they need to shut off power, say they need to shut off power to a transmission line, but then transmission line serves a whole bunch of different regions, some of which are in wildfire territory, some of which are not. Right now, if they just shut off the transmission line, the whole area goes dark, but they want to make it so the whole area doesn't go dark. So they might set up some microgrids at individual substations that then could keep that so everything um, downstream of that substation online, everything in the other areas would still go dark. So if they do that, then that area becomes a little microgrid that I could commandeer. Even at a smaller scale now, there's like proposals to try to institute backup generation, especially right now, there's like a very immediate one, try to institute backup generation for hospitals and things like that, because we're in this like combined COVID plus wildfire zone coming up in like six weeks or something like that. Like wildfire season starts pretty soon. So if we're still under shelter in place, it's going to create this crazy dynamic. So I think I'm going to look around locally for like where, where has there been a bunch of backup generation resiliency installed and then just go try to like take over. You better make sure that they're not diesel gen sets, that they're actually clean microgrids, Shale. Shale, you're on my team. Yeah. I mean, I don't think anybody's 
building a whole lot of new diesel gen sets in California right now, right? At least that's not the proposals. The other words I have for you, Shale, is I am legend. Man, Will Smith reference. You know, before we got online, you did it. You made a Big Bang Theory reference. Jigger, I like this side of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a, lot, a lot of content is going into my eyeballs every evening. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you that Shale is on my team during the apocalypse. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buddy up with him because he's clearly put a lot of thought into this. So, Catherine, was that your answer? Yeah, yeah. I would go. I would go somewhere in the woods, either my cabin in the Adirond- my husband's family's cabin in the Adirondacks, or the place out in the in West Virginia, and try to hunker down. But the reality is, we've got so many kids and dogs; it's probably easier to stay put. <laughs> I've thought a lot about this, and uh, so Shale lived in the Boston area for a long time. I don't know if you remember Shale, the Deer Island wastewater treatment plant. It is a really remarkable feat of engineering. I think yeah. it's the second largest wastewater treatment plant in the country. It serves 43 surrounding communities, including the, the city of Boston. And I live actually like really close to it. So I live in East Boston, as some listeners will know, really close to the airport, a lot of industrial activity. And, um, you know, one town away is this uh, island where they have this massive water, wastewater treatment facility. And so we'll go for walks around it. These 130-foot uh, tall egg digesters, it's surrounded by a seawall on all sides. And it's a really cool uh, system of hydro, uh, uh, methane capture, cogeneration, solar, and wind. And it's islandable as well. And so all the space heat and hot water are supplied through cogeneration. Uh, it's got a, a, a hydroelectric facility, solar and wind, and it's super energy efficient. So they just went through this major lighting retrofit to convert everything to LED. They've got a cafeteria in there, massive fencing to keep everybody out. And every time we walk around there, I fantasize about living there and taking it over during the apocalypse. So that is my go-to spot. I, I dare dare anyone else find the best renewable energy powered apocalyptic bunker in the country. I will definitely like. You're gonna swim there? Yeah, exactly. I, I will definitely <laughs> say that that is a bad idea. Why? You have a lot of people who live around there, and they are gonna overrun your position. <laughs> you need to be in a place like West Virginia, yeah. where you know you have eyes on all sides. Like you can set up the machine gun. Like I don't, I don't know what it is that you're thinking from your spot over there. Like there's, there's naval ships that can get at you from there. Like I mean, you got to be in the mountains. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so let's talk about investments. We had a show a while back about what we would invest a billion dollars in, and um, Cecilia Coffey asked if if we had a billion dollars to invest right now. Give, I presume this is like a technology question, but I think we can all interpret it in different ways. She said, you know, if you, if you had a billion dollars right now, given the changes that we've seen in society and in the economy, would you build, support, or pilot anything that you wouldn't have thought possible before? So I get a sense that we interpreted this question a little bit differently. Um, uh, Catherine, why don't you why don't you start with with answering this one? I would stand up a I'd stand up like a national climate bank or a you know clean infrastructure bank whatever you want to call it a nonprofit that would operate outside of the government but that would be able to really prioritize low income communities prioritize equity projects equity for for people um, and also then drive down risk for folks like Jigger and Shale to invest and do projects in places that would normally maybe not pencil out but that would help them and I think a billion dollars would go a lot of ways and it would 
it would leverage a ton more money. It would pay for itself because it would recycle the money. Um, that's what I would do with it because I think an organization that then seeds and has money coming back to it would be the best thing from from my perspective to invest in. Well, I know you've set up organizations and helped run them. So a billion dollars versus whatever budgets you can expect from launching an organization. I mean, how far would that go? Yeah, it could go really far. It could definitely um, leverage you know, at least, I mean, all the state organizations say it leverages at least $4 for every dollar that you put into it. Um, so I would see that. And, and of course, it pays for itself so it can just recycle the funding. And I think that would be that'd be pretty powerful. Shale, what about you? A billion dollars, given the changes that we've seen, do you change your strategy in terms of how, where you'd put money? I like Catherine's idea, actually, in part because I was struggling to figure out, like, a billion dollars, this is going to sound strange, a billion dollars does not sound like nearly enough to me. Like, you need another order of magnitude to do something really big in this space. So I was struggling with, like, what could you actually do with just a billion dollars? I mean, you can invest in a lot of small things. Um but I don't know. One thing, just specifically to the question of like, what, how has this changed my thinking around some of the spaces that we pay attention to? I think that um, the, one of the things that's going to come out of this, and we're starting to see this a little bit right now in European cities, is kind of a, a rethinking around the way that we use urban design and streets. Um, so you see this in like Madrid and Paris right now, what they're doing is as they reopen after shelter in place, they're redesigning some of their streets. In the case of Madrid, they're adding a bunch of protected bike lanes. Um, in the case of Paris, I think they're doing actually something similar. You could add more bus rapid transit lanes. There's like a lot you can do to redesign the way that we, um, that we run our streets that can optimize for, you know, greenhouse gas emissions reduction for equitability for all sorts of different things. And we don't really do that all that well right now in the United States. Um, so I think now is both a moment because the way that we get around is definitely going to change and the amount that we get around is going to change after we come out of this, but also because there is a moment right now when the streets are underutilized. Like we had the city of Oakland shut down 75 miles of streets or something like that last weekend, left it open to pedestrians and cyclists. There's just like all sorts of things that you can do. And so there's a moment now when we can both see it and actually implement it because, you know, there aren't so many cars on the streets and people don't need to go so many places. So I'd somehow spend a billion dollars like reinventing our transit infrastructure, I think. I like it. Trigger, what about you? Well, first, I have to say in Bethesda, what they decided to do was instead of opening it all up to pedestrians, they basically approved every utility permit that was issued in the last three years. So I think every block of Bethesda has like got the streets torn up and somebody's working on something under the street. So it's kind of crazy. Um, look, I, I mean, I think that the most leverage you can get is through development efforts. And so I think that for a long time, we've thought about a lot of the technologies that we've discussed and um, and you know how cost effective they are for the solutions, whether it's uh, solutions to clean drinking water that could be utilized in Flint, but also in 2,500 2, other uh, water systems, or whether it's uh, the circular economy, where there's tons of pilot projects around you know full recycling, single stream waste, sorting it all into thirteen different you know streams, then taking the end products and recycling it back to virgin plastic and all these other things. And in general, we've just never gotten around to finishing the work. And my sense is that there's actually a lot of localization that's going to happen out of COVID. And so I think there's a lot of counties who are saying, you know, how 
how resilient is our county, right? When we're taking power in from outside of the county, we're taking wastewater services from outside of the county, we want stuff that's more local. And we just happen to have a ton of technologies in the clean energy economy that are more local, that are more distributed, they're more democratic, right? And and so I think that a billion dollars could easily develop a trillion dollars of projects if people actually went out county by county, city by city, and actually developed these, you know, very clear sort of development efforts, plans, et cetera, to get everyone rallied around um, what the art of the possible is. I like that. So my, my, as I thought through this question, my response is a little bit more similar to shales. I was thinking sectorally, or what are the opportunities when the economy starts ramping back up? And the two, I thought, I thought of a few. I mean, one is personal transportation and the design of cities. So what's going to happen is when people start going back to work when they start moving around they're not going to take public transportation as much uh gasoline prices are going to be low and you're probably going to get a lot of people who are driving in their cars and you have a real problem on your hands so one is how can you put in place the systems to you know change the way people get around in cities as shale said also are there methods of personal transportation for anywhere from bicycles to like personal electric vehicles, like smaller electric vehicles that could capitalize on this transition. I don't know the answer to that, but it's like interesting to me to explore. The other would be some... I think it's all about skateboards. Yeah, exactly. Stephen, all about hoverboards. Skateboards. Ho- definitely hoverboards. Um, <laughs> I actually, you know, I haven't skateboarded in 20 years and I have a skateboard deck over here that I bought and I'm, you know, that's one of my projects is I'm going to assemble a skateboard deck and, 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 and hit the skate park here pretty soon. So uh, things are changing nice. dramatically here in my life. <laughs> um, the other thing I would I would also look at is remote inspection. So obviously augmented reality, drones, crawling robots, these are important things in the utility space and they're getting increasingly implemented. But certainly these technologies are going to be in greater use and I think they have a greater urgency now. So I would be thinking through that set of technologies. And then the other would be like additive manufacturing. So how can we use 3D printing to you know, make stuff on site and shorten supply chains? Um, I suspect that due to the increase in using 3D printing for, you know, medical equipment, we will likely see a surge in activity there. So those are the three areas that I would be thinking about. Plenty more discussion coming up and listener questions. First, a little word about our sponsors, the people that help bring you this show and bring you this show for free through an economic crisis. It is uh, Viking Cold Solutions. That's one of our sponsors. They are helping you, the industrial customer, make real-time decisions and leverage the unique thermodynamic properties of phase change material. What does that mean? Well, they've got a cold thermal storage platform, and it helps optimize energy use in refrigerated warehouses, grocery store freezers, and restaurants around the globe. When we really ramp up here and we're back at restaurants and food processing facilities are ramping up again, they're going to need to save money, and thermal storage is a way to do that. Learn more about how thermal energy storage is benefiting the grid, benefiting the food industry, and the environment at vikingcold.com slash grid. We're also brought to you by NextTracker. Solar developers need to slash their costs in any way possible and the delivered cost of electricity. NextTracker helps. 
During the time it takes to listen to this podcast, Next Tracker will have collected gigabytes of real-time operational and performance data from hundreds of thousands of sensors on its solar tracking systems and power plants around the world that helps customers manage the health and well-being of those assets and optimize their energy yields. Find out more about how Next Tracker can help you deliver the solar power plant of the future at nexttracker.com. That's nextracker.com. Okay, a lot of people uh, were asking about this clean energy stimulus. A ton of people on Twitter, a ton of people here on our Q&A platform. So I think we have to address this in some way. Again, this is something we've toyed around with on our shows. So I want to um, you know, try to hit some new territory. The um, We got some questions about the best solutions for the clean energy stimulus, if we get a stimulus that includes clean energy. And then we got this most upvoted question, which is about how to turn the economic disaster generally into an opportunity for clean energy. Um, so let's talk first about the opportunity, right? What is the outlook that we think bodes best for clean energy during a recovery, either here in the U.S. or internationally? Catherine, what's the most optimistic scenario that this crisis can be turned into positive momentum for renewables and clean tech broadly. Yeah, certainly a lot of leaders in Europe are thinking about this too, and companies all over the world are forming alliances to say, all right, how do we, when we recover, make sure that it's clean and make sure things look like they do now, except with work going on. Um, but it seems like the first thing you have to figure out is like, what is not going to come back or what's going to have the hardest time coming back? And how do we fund that? Or how do we fund a replacement for something that we don't want to come back? So one thing I think we could think about is manufacturing and maybe giving the auto companies or the airlines some money with conditions that they use clean fuels or that they manufacture EVs. So make sure that we're putting the policy forces in place along with the funding so that that manufacturing goes in the right direction. Um, you, there are so many other things that you can be thinking about doing. Um, one is somebody had mentioned the Works Progress Administration, which was this fund back during the depression to try to get people back to work. So like, let's figure out what are the sectors that maybe won't come back or you remember there were a lot of people that had not actually been part of the energy transition and were left behind. Why don't we put some money into doing more things like building infrastructure, put some more manufacturing policy into place and put those people to work in factories that are churning out clean energy product and making sure that we have a supply chain that's resilient and reliable in the US. Um, and then also look at a broad range of technology and, and non-technology expertise that can all feed in to an economy that benefits everybody. Fantastic ideas. I feel very cynical about the United States using the opportunity to implement some of those policies. Does anybody else, you know, where do you all fall on the spectrum of cynicism to positivity when it comes to implementing what Catherine's talking about? Well, look, I mean, I certainly think that um, the ideas are all very strong. I think that it depends on the sectors, right? So I'm a big fan of the WPA, and I think it was a big oversight on the Obama administration's part not to put that in place during the stimulus. Explain what the WPA is. 
So it was really a make work program back, you know, during the Great Depression where, you know, folks who wanted a job could get a job and they get paid by the federal government and they do tasks that were important to local communities. They planted enough trees to uh, cover the entire state of California during that period of time. They fixed up a lot of riverbanks and other places that had been eroded. Um, many of those projects are ones that we continue to benefit from today. I mean, my high school, you know, football gym and all that stuff was you know, built by the Work Progress Administration. So I, I think LaGuardia getting, Airport was too, Jigger. Absolutely. But I think those projects are probably unlikely to be done by the WPA, given union issues and all that stuff. But I think ecosystem restoration can absolutely be funded by the WPA. And I think we should be thinking about it now because we're definitely going to be paying people unemployment for the next two years. I don't see how we get around it. And I just don't see why we wouldn't put that in place now as opposed to paying people to be unemployed and um, and not, you know, like thinking about these ecosystem restoration projects. We have so many of them. They've been well documented and um, and there really is no like sort of conflict with unions and other things. Right. So I think there's I, I think it's really about how we position it um, to actually get it done. Well, the question here that I'm riffing off of is is phrased this way, what would need to happen? Now, I don't know exactly what is intended by this question, but I'm interpreting it as like uh, both what the industry can do, but also like what what are, what will happen within politics to make sure that the pieces are in motion for clean energy to play some role in the economic recovery. So let's take the political piece. Uh, I mean, Catherine, you're best equipped to, to talk about like what needs to happen. What 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 would need to happen to leverage the current crisis in terms of actual policymaking and implementing the ideas you're talking about? Yeah, so everybody's talking about infrastructure. Uh, the president has talked about $2 trillion infrastructure package. Mnuchin has talked about infrastructure. Nancy Pelosi has talked about infrastructure. Chuck Schumer has. Um, McConnell, to some degree, has. So I think if you can couch this as infrastructure, which certainly clean energy is, um, and you can certainly make an argument for that, um, and tie it directly to jobs, I think you can get two things done at once. I think you can, you can build jobs and infrastructure in a way that... Um, um, helps clean energy, um, helps create more jobs, and keeps us from emitting more than we need to. Yeah. I mean, I look, I think that, you know, we've got about, what, 4 million people that are directly employed by the clean energy industry in the United States. This is energy efficiency and others. I think if you broaden that out and include the 3.6 million people that are employed by the oil and gas industry and others that would be part of this infrastructure bill, my sense is that you actually have to pay people to do interesting stuff, right? The oil and gas industry are on their back. Um, they're definitely not coming back anytime soon. Um, oil prices are probably not going to rebound for at least another year and a half. And so most of these guys are going to go bankrupt. The four largest banks are actually looking to consolidate their senior debt positions into like, you know, like sort of these new oil and gas companies. There's definitely a lot of folks who are actually clamoring for the federal government to come in and nationalize the oil and gas industry. I, I, I don't see how any of that stuff works unless you give them something meaningful to do. People don't want to get paid to sit around and collect paychecks. They actually want to be part of something uh, where that's building something. And so, you know, we're going to have to get really serious about carbon sequestration and storage and pay the $50 a ton that 45Q is offering in cash. Um, and that probably could put a lot of those people back to work, right? We're going to have to like actually take all the different things that we've 
studied in the past on geothermal and actually get those drilling rigs back to work, right? I mean, there's a lot of universities in the Northeast, for instance, that would like to move away from natural gas and oil heat to geothermal heat and cooling, but, you know, they require big rigs to get that kind of stuff done, right? And a lot of those folks in the industry know what they're doing, but I just think that the level of government planning that's required to make that happen is beyond the scope of this administration, right? And so it's not really just about allocating money in the stimulus bill to do that. Allocating money in the stimulus bill just gets you more of what we're already doing. Maybe it's 50% more than we're getting now, but it doesn't really put you on a path to 1.5 degrees. Which puts you on a path to 1.5 degrees, as we talked about before, is actually taking you know the Defense you know, Production Act and basically saying that we're going to, you know, uh, mobilize World War II style. And I think when you talk about to most of the economists out there, they're actually saying that we need to do that, that like we're actually headed into a a depression. This is not a recession, right? For those people who like haven't followed this carefully, like this is not the 2008 financial crisis. At the end of this process, fully 20% of our economy is never coming back or definitely not coming back for two years. People are not renting out the back room at a restaurant to have a birthday party, right? Gatherings of 50 or more people aren't going to happen. And so if you take 20% of the entire population and you have to figure out what to do with them, that requires World War II mobilization. I think people haven't thought through clearly what it took for us to get out of the Great Depression. It took World War II. Nothing FDR did actually worked until we entered World War II. And so I I think people are actually taking the crisis that we're in very lightly. And the $2 trillion that we've already allocated is not nearly enough to kickstart this economy. We've we've got a permanent hole in our economy and we've got to fill it with, you know, infrastructure. Shale, if you could choose a high impact priority to put in the stimulus or to think through that would, you know, be important for government spending on, what would it be? Why And why that thing above all others? Uh, the first thing that comes to mind is some kind of an um, moonshot, sunshot program for electrification, which is, you know, the, the like high level heuristic we always talk about for how do you combat climate change is decarbonize electricity, electrify everything you can, and then pick up the kind of pieces in the other sectors that are hard to electrify. And that second step, the electrify everything part feels like it's, it's reasonably well behind track. You know, we're making progress in light duty vehicles and like, there's some, there's some areas where there's activity, but I I feel like there's a big opportunity for government to accelerate that. So it'd be interesting. I haven't thought through this fully, but it would be interesting to conceive of a program that is cross sectoral focused on electrification of industries ranging from transportation to like ports, to industry, to all the different things that can be electrified and for which electrification is core to deep decarbonization, but for which we haven't gotten there yet. So the second upvoted question here is something, I guess we've discussed it. And that's just like, what's the likelihood that this gets wrapped into the kind of mobilization that we're talking about here, Um, you know, in this sort of Green New Deal type package, this World War II mobilization that we know we need, but that is so far removed from our political reality. Can it then become a reality given the crisis that we're going through? Um, Anyone want to comment on the the art of the possible that has now opened up? This is this is the thing. I mean, Catherine, I'd love your perspective on this. This is the thing that frustrates me the most. Right today, we've got fifteen people, you know, driving around in cars at like 
in Lansing, Michigan, and like 27 people in this place. And we're basically talking about it like it's a movement, right? That like all these people want to like defy, um, you know, shelter in place regulations and all this other stuff. But like, I think that the media narrative around these really tiny little protests, just like they did during the Tea Party movement back in 2009, is absolutely ridiculous. But on the other side, right, in the 50th anniversary of Earth Day, we had 20% of the entire U.S. population celebrate the first Earth Day. 20% of the entire U.S. population, right? And I do think that's what it's going to take here if people really want the Green New Deal, right? It's not something that actually just happens overnight. It happens because a lot of people stay off of Twitter and stay off of Facebook and actually like goes and talks to people and says, look, we need to like do something. My job is never coming back. That job that I hated before the COVID crisis is never coming back. I'm not going to like, you know, be able to make the salary that I wanted to like working at that restaurant or working like, you know, delivering food to people via Instacart or like driving people around with Uber and Lyft. Like someone's going to have to create a real job for me with real training and a real career path. And I think a lot of those people right now are going to be sitting at home saying nothing. And unless they actually come out and say we need something bold and large and big, and it's got to be led by the 4 million people already working in the clean energy industry. But if we don't get super vocal, right, my sense is it's not on track to happening. Yeah, one thing that's really hopeful to me is that, and, and that this COVID crisis has sort of proven out, is the ability for collective action. We've been talking for a long time about how it's really hard to get everybody to do something and think about something. Well, guess what? Most people are staying home now. Most people are being really, really safe. I mean, we have collectively as a globe done this to try to keep ourselves safe. And I think if we can mobilize in that same way, um, we know we can do it because we're doing it right now about the virus and we could do it for climate change too. So our second most upvoted question is all about companies that are uh, integrating, um, you know, sustainability and societal metrics into how they make investments, uh, so-called ESG. And uh, the question is, will ESG companies be more protected after this crisis or be more insulated as we go through this crisis. Um, so I, 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 I'm not a financial advisor. Uh, you know, do not take any financial advice. But I did take a look at some some stats and found that in the first three months of the year, 70% of sustainable equity funds recorded returns in the top half of their peer group. And that's according to Morningstar. Um, also, HSBC showed that ESG companies that are talking about ESG outperformed other stocks uh, by 5.7% in the first three months of the year. So we can see that at least at the beginning of this crisis, that companies that are integrating uh, these standards into how they do business are performing better in public markets. And the question is, um, Will they perform better in terms of stock prices, but will they be more insulated to risk over the long term? What do you all think? So ESG investing is a really complicated, it's, it's a fascinating space, but it's, it's complex, right? And it's not monolithic and it's not clear always on the outside what somebody means when they say something is an ESG investment. So I think it's worth teasing out a few components of this. There's one part of it, which is, so there's all these like index funds and things like that that are linked to ESG. 
And in the early days of doing that, a lot of that was exclusions more than it was inclusions. So it didn't necessarily mean that every company in that index fund had a strong ESG policy. It meant that they weren't like a fossil fuel company, for example. There's a component of the outperformance of late that is tied to that, right? Because for example, oil and gas companies, as Jigger said, are getting hit pretty hard and have been for a while. So there's some of it that's that. Then there's the companies that... Um, have a strong ESG policy and define definition of strong is evolving, right? There's different standards that companies are adhering to and reporting. Some of them are stronger than others. Um, but there's just like a ridiculous amount of capital that's flowing into this sector. Goldman Sachs just put out its sustainability report, I think yesterday. And they said that ESG linked funds that Goldman Sachs asset management has under management went from, I think I'm going to get this right, 17 billion in 2018 to 79 billion in 2019. So it's this like enormous growth in the funds that are flowing into the sector. Um, I think that at least from my perspective, like, you know, I think the trend toward ESG is fantastic. And as the accounting standards and the requirements become more robust, it's going to be more meaningful and impactful. But I think what you probably can say about the performance to date is that companies that have taken ESG seriously enough to be included in one of these index funds or, you know, to pass the ESG screen are probably just better run companies overall. And so they are performing better. But I don't think the very fact that they have incorporated environmental, social, or governance um, factors into their business model inherently means they're performing better in a COVID world, right? The companies that are performing better because of COVID are a pretty short list, and it's mostly like Slack and Zoom and Netflix. But on a relative basis, um, if you are the type of company that caught this ESG trend early, uh, that just means you're smart. Right. And so I think they probably are better performing that way. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, this is this COVID thing is a macro overlay, which is much larger than ESG. Right. So I think ESG is really more about well-run companies. I mean, what COVID is 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 highlighting is basically some companies are going to be in and some companies are going to be out in terms of how services and and things change just because of the way in which post-COVID world looks. Will standards for ESG slip? Will companies, you know, there's going to be such a rush to reopen the global economy, reopen national economies, uh, get business going again. Will company interest in um, sustainability, for example, wane because of that? Or will it accelerate because of uh, the opportunities at hand? What do you all think? I think it's too early to say, but the company interest to be to be somewhat cynical about it i think there's some companies that are just progressive um but many many companies are being pulled into it through their investors right so the the demand pull for esg is coming from those who hold financial assets those who hold equities in particular who are saying we demand this from you um so blackrock's big announcement right like larry fink's letter is was the the announcement that shook the earth in that world and I don't see that going away. I mean, if you be, if you take Larry Fink at his word um, that you know he believes sustainability to be core to the future success of businesses, and thus it is a financial motivation that is driving him to incorporate this kind of analytics into into their decision making, I don't see why that would change in a COVID world. And so, if the pressure continues to be put on companies from their investors, 
I don't see why they shirk their responsibilities as a result. Yeah, I agree. And I think that um, institutions like colleges and universities and private schools that have divested find themselves in a much better position. I know my husband is an advisor for a college, and he said that they feel really good about having a business model for their institution that has divested, and they feel much better about everything, uh, you know, all of their investments in in the school. And I think that's that's another piece that's going to play into this. The bigger issue, I think, is remember the business roundtable a few months ago said that we shouldn't only care about shareholder returns. We should also care about you know our other stakeholders. Um, during the financial you know downturn in March, um, it became pretty obvious that no one was taking any of those signatures seriously, right? Coca Cola hasn't grown as a business in seven years. The entire growth of Coca Cola has come back from share buybacks. And, you know, figuring out how to take on more debt to pay higher dividends. It like the whole like all of the emperor has no clothes were revealed in March as the share prices went down. And people were like, oh, crap, like that business is a lot weaker than we thought. Right. And uh, so people have clearly been gaming the system for shareholders for the last seven years or longer and not necessarily growing their businesses in real organic ways. So the stock market has been sending false signals to investors around which companies are strong and which ones are weak. I hope out of this whole process, we actually have more transparency and less of this opaqueness around which companies are strong and which companies are weak, right? So that we can actually get to a better place around allocating capital within capitalism. We got a number of people asking, uh, or upvoting a question about whether electricity demand will rebound. So uh, in some areas of the country, right, it's it's fallen, what, 15%? Did it fall 15% in New York? Can't remember. Yeah, a little bit more. How how far was it, Shale? You were shaking your head. No, it's, it's less than that in aggregate. It's, it's, it's um, 15, 20% for CNI load. Residential load is up 6 to 8% generally. So it nets out to being down like 6 to 9%, depending on the region. Okay, so what will the recovery look like for electricity demand as we come out of this? And when I ask that question, I think no no one really knows what the time frame looks like. Like as the weeks go on, it's very clear that this is going to be a very complicated and ongoing recovery with a lot of fits and starts. So uh, predictions are very difficult. But what what is your best guess or what are people telling you, Shale, about what electricity demand will look like as we come out of this? Well, there's a short term and a medium term answer to that question. The short term answer to that question is when do we come out of shelter in place? And that totally dictates. I mean, the current what's happening right now with electricity demand is entirely tied to the COVID response. That's why CNI and industrial load is down, residential load is up, right? And so the pace at which and the stages in which we resume normalcy of daily life will totally dictate how fast that responds. And that's, you know, anybody's guess, right? Other than Dr. Fauci, I suppose. Um, <laughs> the medium term question is once we emerge, what will electricity demand look like? And there, you know, I think the presumption that you can make that's reasonably safe is that we emerge into recession. And so you can look to previous recessions and the impacts on electricity demand as a result as maybe a decent corollary. So in the 2008 recession, you know, in aggregate um, across the country, we shed something like 4% of electricity load. um, And then that recovered slowly but surely as the recession recovered like we you know it tracks we we've largely decoupled electricity demand growth in the macro sense from uh gdp growth which is a good thing but 
in the case of a specific economic cycle, it does tend to track more or less. So if, if it looks like 2008, then, you know, we emerge from shelter in place, electricity demand relative to baseline is still down four or 5%, something like that. And then it takes however long it takes us to emerge from recession to get back to normal. I was just going to say the other thing that's worth noting is like the, the other thing that's interesting right now is that our load profiles are different, right? So it's not just aggregate demand that's different. It's that demand over the course of the day is different. So in residential, for example, you don't have nearly as much of a morning peak as you generally would, um, which is a, a good thing. We have a flatter load in the morning. People tend to wake up later. They don't all wake up at the same time and make coffee and do all these things before they go off to work. Um, and then it's a little flatter throughout the day, but then still has a similar evening peak at the moment, though that seems to be shedding a little bit as well. So in the meantime, there's interesting dynamics just like within the day in electricity while we're all sheltered in place. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I, I've talked to some utilities about this and about what's going to happen to demand. And the general thought is, you know, one of the big questions is what will persist? What are the behaviors that aren't going to go back to the way they were? You know, what is going to, you know, how are companies going to, for example, you think about SoCal Ed, we talked about this during one of the other episodes, they have everybody set up to work from home, will they just leave them working from home after this is done? Maybe that would be the most efficient thing to do. Um, so maybe there is a way that some of this behavior and some of the way we have adjusted will will persist. And there will just be a different way that the demand curve looks. But one thing I also found out, I talked to Patty Poppy from Consumers about their clean energy targets. And she said, look, this is not changing that. This is not changing our wanting to go to a clean energy future in any way, shape, or form. We have, may have a lot of questions about how things are coming back, but that's not one thing we're changing. And that was good to hear. Yeah, I think this is going to be far worse, guys. Like, I just, I mean, I, I don't think, I don't think we're thinking about this correctly. I think there's still some sort of desire on people's part for things to go back to normal. And I don't think we're even close to projecting anything going back to normal. And so my sense is that you're probably going to see wholesale power prices crash. Um, pretty much everyone who had a merchant strategy is probably going to lose their shirt, um, whether it's a natural gas peaker plant or even solar and wind projects who are going to bank on you know, a bunch of $9,000 a megawatt hour hours in the middle of the summer in Texas. I think they're all just completely screwed. I mean, even the demand response markets where Enernoc had played in the past and now you've got other names. I don't know what the demand is going to be going forward to pay these really high prices in, in Massachusetts and Rhode Island and other places for lobbing off the peak, right? Or in, you know, Ontario with, uh, you know, the global adjustment charge. Like, I just feel like in general, people think that like the dynamics of the electricity business where people made a lot of money may return. I mean, for instance, even in like in the in the battery business, right? The battery business has largely been, you know, sort of like fourth grader type complexity, right? I think that it has the ability to provide extraordinary amount of resources and response times as the mega battery that Tesla's put into Australia has shown. There's not a single utility in the United States who's actually paying people properly for any of those um, additional services. And so people are still using just like very basic revenue streams to finance batteries. Most of those revenue streams have been cut in half in terms of the value um, because of a reduction in volatility. So like, I just feel like in general, when we think about 
where the electricity business is going, their denominator is shrinking and it will be, have shrunk because they're incapable of figuring out how to promote electric vehicles or heat pumps or anything else that we talk about around electrifying everything. And if the denominator continues to be small, that means they're going to probably have five to 7% rate increases per year going into the future, right? Just to keep like the things going like I like this is this is not well thought through yet. And I think the utility companies are completely out to lunch as to what's going to happen in their business next year. Well, they're trying to keep the system running and their people safe right now. Well, that might be true, but they still also got to figure out how to raise debt. And if their credit rating keeps getting, you know, like pushed down, then I'm not sure how well they're going to do. Shale, I saw you shaking your head over there. I was going to say what Catherine was. I mean, look, like, you know, I, I think forget the long-term thing for a minute utilities utility workers don't get enough credit as as emergency responders in general and certainly in right now i mean we've got you know i don't know what the number is now but like hundreds and hundreds of con ed employees have contracted covid they're like something like 20 percent of the entire vogel workforce has covid now all these people are out working making sure the lights are on we've all discovered like even more so than any other time how important access to um, consistent, ubiquitous access to electricity is, given that we're all at home and trying to stay connected to the world. So I don't know, I'm currently in the mode of like being thankful that they're there and that the lights are on. Yeah, I had a utility leader say to me that uh, electricity is like toilet paper. You don't notice it until it's gone. And that's particularly important right now. Absolutely. I get it, guys. And I'm happy to be as thankful as you guys are. But I just think that the question was really around whether we're going to go back to normal on any of these things. And I don't think we are. Like, I think the utility companies need to like really get ahead of this stuff and start educating regulators instead of fighting us on electrification efforts, right? I mean, I just think that they want to build all sorts of EV, you know, recharging stations, but they don't want to do the most basic things to promote people buying EVs. I just think that in general, we're in a situation right now where we are probably headed towards a permanent reduction in electricity consumption. And that's going to lead to tremendously hard decisions for people in the future, which probably take 24 to 36 months to turn around. So I hope there's somebody within the utility industry that's actually thinking about these things. So Shale, I think you're, you know, you're well equipped to talk about some of the investment decisions that utilities are making as they think about investing in companies and business models. Like, do you, do you think that they will many leading utilities will come out of this crisis with a different or accelerated investment thesis in, in clean tech in any way? I mean, respond to kind of what J Jigger is taking a pretty pessimistic view on this. Do, do you feel like they'll use it as an opportunity in any way? I don't think it's the right frame to say that they'll use it as an opportunity. I mean, I do think that they're, they're there's, there's a risk that, so what's happening in the immediate term is utilities are, um, they're suspending disconnections almost universally, right? Which means that they have an increasing number of customers who aren't paying their bills and the utilities aren't disconnecting them. There's a risk of bad debt. So there's definitely like a an economic impact on utilities that is gonna have to get worked out. And in, in all likelihood, because this is you know a public health crisis, they're probably gonna get recovery for that. Um, and there may be some ratepayer impact on on that. And I think, I think it'll be small and probably justified, but it, it might be there. You know, there's this, the longer term question of like, how do they respond to this? You know, I don't think they're making money. Utilities are not the ones making money on the peak costs at the moment necessarily, right? It's the, those demand response companies, for example, that Jigger was mentioning or the generators. So there's a different group of actors that will suffer if it is true that as Jigger is saying, that the load curve becomes flatter. If the load curve becomes flatter in general, if you're a utility, that's good for you. Um, 
more broadly, I think that utilities are pushing pretty hard on electrification. I mean, there's other areas that you can debate whether they're, uh, you know, doing the utmost to promote decarbonization for sure. But like on electrification, I think they're strong. Um, there's opposition, but it's not coming from them. Well, though, but I mean, but this goes to your comment earlier, right? Which is, you know, whether we're going to electrify out of this crisis, right? And I don't think we're on track to electrifying everything out of this crisis, right? I mean, EEI better have a strong voice, the federal government, if we're going to electrify everything out of this crisis. And I don't see their voice anywhere on this stuff. I think on the electric vehicle side, for instance, like, you know, there's there's absolutely an acceleration of, you know, banning internal combustion engines that we could pursue. There's a acceleration of, you know, like strengthening cafe standards in California, which a lot of other states go on. I don't know whether EEI and the utility companies in California have a have a point of view there, but I think it's pretty mild. And so I'm just saying like like if you want any of what you predicted to come true, there needs to be a much bigger voice in the room than Greenpeace, like pushing for this. Like there needs to be a really large voice if that's what you want prioritized. Otherwise, I don't see like that occurring. I think in general, what will happen is the load curve will flatten. The utility companies won't be able to rate base a lot more T&D infrastructure, which would be a good thing. But separately, I think the utility companies are going to sit there with a tremendous amount of competition to their core business model because there's a tremendous amount of assets being deployed right now. There's a lot of natural gas engines that are EPA compliant getting added to the grid right now. And there's a lot of folks who are saying, I actually have EPA uh, approval to run them at any time. Like I might actually just use them all the time uh, to to do this. I think you're going to get a lot more sort of microgrid uh, deployment out of some of those stranded assets, right? I just think, I don't think the utilities are thinking through how they want to include all these assets into their future. So we, I, I, then I don't think that's true. I think they are. And I think they are pushing for it. And I think you're drawing a straw man, honestly. I think the auto OEMs are an interesting player here where it's like, you know, they, they, can't quite make up their minds and it'll be interesting to see how this impacts them but i just don't agree on how utilities are approaching it so we have a question here from a listener uh for Catherine: how are you such a boss oh <laughs> what does that mean how do you do it <laughs> what does that mean <laughs> i think you know what that means <laughs> Um, I'm like shale. I multitask. I just multitask and just hope I don't, <laughs> I, I don't know if it's spinning plates and I just pray I don't drop a plate. I think that's what it is. <laughs> There's a question here about beard oil. What kind of beard oil do we use? Uh, for me, it's just like the milk that drips off my chin after my 15th bowl of frosted flakes. Uh, I use no since, oil. It's, it's Since this beard <laughs> is only a few weeks old, I haven't used any beard oil. I just got done cutting all of the hair of all of my boys in the family. And it was, including my husband, it was, it was quite, it was quite an event. I'm going to go, I'm going to try to go a hundred days without cutting anything. That's my goal. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. You're going to look like that hermit with your fingernails, like starting to curl. I will, I will cut those. Yeah. Let me tell you the, co the COVID captain in my house. Would not let that happen. You would get a cut. <laughs> so we had this conversation on the energy gang and we had a variation of it on the interchange that I, I think we'll continue to have. And there are a number of questions in here, specific questions that we're not going to get to because we're going to have to close out the show here. But I, I, I don't have the same sense of optimism that Catherine and Jigger share coming out of this crisis. And Shale and I have kind of 
thought through some of the changes in markets and the business environment. And, you know, Jigger made a point like, and, and Catherine made a similar point, like so much changed after these big moments like the Great Depression. People made more stuff. They held on to stuff more. They got around differently. We had government programs that invested in things that uh, uh, were completely like non-existent. And the electric utility when system. it comes to, well, yes, of course, of course. I, I mean, I believe that will be, there will be meaningful government investments coming out of this, but in terms of behavior, I just feel like when the the the, the lights start to flicker and, and people get on the roads again and they, they turn on their office lights, behavior will go back to mostly normal. And we may have changes in the way people work a little bit. We may have some changes to the way we make things. But ultimately, we're going to get back into the same systems of making things and behavior. And I just I felt like there was a sense of optimism there that I don't share. And I would love to hear just all of your takes on how you're feeling about this moment generally. Shale, why don't you start? Well, I think you can hold both things in your mind at the same time. On one hand, you know, the, it's obviously true that this pandemic is going to, is a global calamity and it's going to cause years of pain and hardship for probably billions of people. Um, so like, I think you're forgiven for some pessimism. Uh, and I also think you could be forgiven for not thinking that we're going to come out of this and suddenly all be woke about climate, for example, right? If that's what you're, you're imagining the, like, there've been some people who've been like, oh, from, you know, we'll realize after this that air travel is unnecessary and we won't travel in planes anymore. And like, I, I, I think I, I tend to lean on the same side as you. On the other hand, um, it does seem increasingly clear that COVID is going to impact the world on the same order of magnitude is like World War II and the the very small number of other things that have ch totally changed the world in ways that we never will come back from. So I do agree with, I guess, what, what Catherine and Jigger were saying previously, which is like, this will change everything. I, I think that's true. I don't know yet what that means for the things that are nearest and dearest to me and whether those changes will be net positive or net negative and how. But there's clearly an opportunity in here somehow because we are going to be in this extended period of drastic global change to push it in a direction that you want. So though, I guess what I'm saying is though, I think you're, it's reasonable to feel somewhat pessimistic about it. That also doesn't get you anywhere. And so the smartest thing to do if you feel like you want to make some change in the world is to say, all right, I need to seize whatever opportunity that I've got here to steer this monumental shift in the direction that I think is going to be better for the world. Catherine, what do you think? I do think everything will change. I think one thing that I'm feeling pretty strongly about right now is that we really do need leadership. We need leadership in cities and counties that we're getting now. We need leadership in states. And we really need federal leadership to get us going in the right direction. I could see things going really, really badly in a recovery if we don't get the right people running everything. And I think I would just say to folks, like, we got to do everything we can to register to vote and to get people to vote by paper, by mail, by however we can. We got to get out there and vote to make sure that we get leadership in place that will be able to help us through this recovery and put things in place that won't just tear us down. Here, here. 
Totally agree. And we're going to be seeing a lot of spending into the next administration. So this election had such significant consequences, but the consequences are only greater. So uh, very important words. Jigger, what about you? How? What is your kind of range of pessimism to optimism? Well, like Shale, I agree that there's going to be a lot of reasons to be pessimistic. I think the World Food Program just announced that they just don't have enough food to feed everybody. And, you know, people who are going to be dying of starvation this year will be at an all-time high that they haven't seen in 30 to 40 years. And so, I mean, there's a lot of reasons to be pessimistic. Um, but but I do think that there will be a large hole to fill um, out of COVID. And I don't see how it gets filled any other way other than infrastructure. I don't see how you fill it. Like, we need a make work program. And so whether it's work progress administration or more likely just an infrastructure bill, I think that we are going to have 10, 15, 20 bites at this apple. And I do think that people need to figure out like how to incentivize infrastructure. And, you know, I think that almost everybody who looks around looks at it and says, well, just helping the fracking industry get back to its, you know, pre-COVID levels doesn't really solve anything, right? I mean, you still have a world awash in oil and, you know, permanent destruction of some discretionary spending, Right. I mean, whether it's music concerts of a thousand people in one place or whether it's sporting events with a thousand people in one place. Right. And so um, it does feel like there's, you know, that we're well positioned. But I but I do. That's why I'm so optimistic coming out of this is I do think that the world that we're describing in the future is actually a world that is a better one, um, particularly with everyone enjoying all the clean air and clean, you know, cleaner drinking water and all those things. And so. So I do think we have a lot of bites at the apple. It's certainly not um, a foregone conclusion that we're going to you know, win that battle. But I do think we're far better positioned today than we were in 2008, 2009. Okay, so we have four minutes here. The, the clock is ticking downward before we end. Uh, we're going to get to our free electrons now. And I am really curious about something specific as we've gone through you know, five, six weeks of this where we've really hunkered down. Is there something new you've learned about yourself? Is there something in the way you do your job and the way you spend your time in the way that you think thoughts uh, would be really curious to hear about your experiences? Catherine, anything new you've learned about yourself? Yeah, so I've affirmed that I am extremely grateful for my family, my husband, my children. I love to be around them. That has all been a huge amount of gratitude and that we live in a place that we can get out and walk around. Um, But one thing I've learned that I didn't kind of realize was so strong was fear. I am terrified of going to the grocery store and um and 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 I my family can feel it and I'm what I'm scared of is that I walk in and that there are all those little covid globules that immediately attach all over to my body and then I walk into my house and I'm going to make everybody sick. And um and so when I have to go to the grocery store once a week and it's just uh, I'm super grumpy after that and it's not anything that I've ever felt before. I've never felt that much fear. And, and trying to be protecting all of those people that I have gratifi- gratitude for. So that's what I've learned. Mm. Jigger, what about you? Well, it's certainly been a, an eye-opening experience around, you know, uh, just figuring out how to be a good, you know, uh, husband and father, right? Like ultimately, you know, everything's compartmentalized, right? You send your kid to daycare, you're, you know, 
they come back in one piece. You like then feed them dinner and go to sleep. And now like you have them all day. You're homeschooling them. You're trying to figure out like, you know, more screen time, less screen time, which screen time, like, you know, and then, you know, like everyone's getting stressed out around. And I mean, I have to say, I mean, the thing I've learned uh, about um, myself is that, you know, I need, I need help. I need all the folks around me and, you know, I'm uh, eternally grateful that they're there to support me and, you know, hopefully that I'm there to support them. I certainly um, am just really feeling it for folks who, you know, are sheltering in place alone and, um, you know, have, you know, less of the social network. We're lucky that, uh, my wife's brother, um, is here too. So we got seven people in the house. And so it's a lot, a lot better than, than most, but I'm definitely a social animal and it's, it's a good thing that I've got all the support because I, I, I need it. Shale, what about you? One thing that I discovered that's been interesting, I guess, is that I've always, so my, my wife, I think would eventually someday far into the future, if she had her way, you know, we'd end up somewhere pretty rural um, like up in the mountains someplace. Um, and I've always assumed that's just like not a lifestyle I'm ever going to be able to get on board with. It's just not me. Um, but there is something, you know, and, and not that I'm exactly in that lifestyle now, but it's a little closer to it than my normal world is. And I, you know, there's something kind of appealing about it to me. So I don't know, it's making me rethink my kind of what the, what the lifestyle, uh, what the band of lifestyles that I can support um, might be over the long term. There's, you know, something that's a little slower right now, despite my busy mind that, uh, that I kind of like. I thought you were going to Armageddon in Oakland. Yeah. You know, it's a fair <laughs> point. Maybe I should join you guys in West Virginia. I still have this image in my head of you both in the like wilderness in West Virginia with your little clans, like separately happening to run into each other in the middle of the woods. Uh, yeah. That's awesome. Uh, well, I, I've had something similar. Uh, you know, I have, a lot of anxieties that build up in my life. And I've realized through this that many of those anxieties and the mental anguish that I face are a result of a lot of little things bothering me. And it's very difficult for me to separate the really important things from the really insignificant things in daily life. And for me, one of the problems I have is that they all feel the same to me. And so it causes really severe anxiety, frustration. I get very hard on myself, agitation sometimes. And it, you know, it can be problematic and, and, and make, you know, can create some kind of anguish. And through all this, all of a sudden, all of that small stuff got stripped away. And we have to be on a very disciplined schedule with a nine month old and two people working full time. Uh, a lot of the, the, I mean, the craziness of work, you just have to manage and get through in a way where all the unimportant stuff falls away. And a lot of my anxieties and frustrations have dropped off, which is really remarkable to me. And I suspect that there are a lot of people who are facing that as well. I've read some articles, uh, the Daily Beast and Washington Post had some good pieces about how some folks with certain type of anxieties have, have faced a similar change in their behavior. Now, I, my heart goes out to people who, um, you know, have mental health issues or similar anxieties that have gotten worse. And I know that is a chronic problem right now during this crisis. But I have seen a, some positivity from that. And I'm very, very thankful for that. 
Thank you, everybody, for being here. We really appreciate your support and taking so much time to be with us here. There's still a lot of people who are with us right now. Thanks, everybody. Uh, please you know, go over to Apple Podcasts or Stitcher and give us a rating and review if you haven't done so already. It is super helpful for helping us with searching and uh, help other people who are interested in this topic find us. Uh, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah are my Energy Gang co-hosts. Shale Khan is my Interchange co-host. Ingrid Lobet is our senior editor. And you can find both of these podcasts wherever you get your shows. The Interchange tends to dig into one subject in a deep way. And the Energy Gang rounds up the latest stories happening in any given week. So make sure to collect both. We are a co-production of Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media. And please take care of yourselves out there. You know, we, we care about you. We appreciate you being with us, supporting us, and we're grateful that you're listening to the show. So um, thank you. And this has been our Shelter in Place live podcast spectacular. We will catch you next week on our normal feeds and shows. And we hope to be able to do this again in the not-so-distant future. Thank you. 